These governors won't help us beat the pandemic. I'll use my power as president to get them out of the way. Joe Biden is having this hissy fit. Pandemic politics, Florida fighting with the feds. Yes, we do see some loud vocal opponents. Over vaccine mandates. Uh, we have a responsibility to stand up for the Constitution and to- And mandatory masks in class. It has nothing to do with Republican, Democrat views. It has everything to do with, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We still need it to send a message to African-American people. COVID in communities of color. It didn't happen overnight that the population is resistant to vaccines. How to overcome vaccine hesitancy. The environment or the economy. We need an economic engine in South Dade. We need this land for Everglades restoration. The debate in South Dade over the UDB. Remembering and reflecting 20 years later. This is the day that cannot be forgotten. It's all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. And I'm Christina Vasquez. Glenna has the morning off. And we begin with a South Florida Congressman's take on President Joe Biden's plan to expand the social safety net. The proposed $3.5 trillion bill would fundamentally change the social safety net. It's considered the most ambitious expansion since the war on poverty in the 1960s. The proposal would expand health care, provide for free preschool, and fund climate change programs. But most Republicans and some moderate Democrats worry that Mr. Biden's big plan is too sweeping, too expensive, too close to socialism. It would be funded by hiking taxes on the wealthy and on corporations. That is a heavy lift. The same objections could also derail a bipartisan infrastructure plan that was narrowly approved in the Senate. It is awaiting a vote in the House of Representatives. Representative Ted Deutsch is a member of the House, a Democrat from Boca Raton, represents the 22nd Congressional District, parts of Broward and Palm Beach counties. Congressman, good morning. Great to see you. Thanks for being on the show with us. It's great to be with you. Thanks, Michael. All right, uh, Congressman, uh, would you please explain where you stand here on this $3.5 trillion plan to expand the social safety net? I mean, as you know, Republicans say, hey, this is pure and simple socialism. How do you see it? Uh, sure. Well, I think you need to, to first look at the bipartisan $1.5 trillion uh, infrastructure plan and view them together. And here's why, Michael. It's been decades, three decades at least, that we've been saying we need to invest in our bridges and our ports. We need to, to make sure that we're competing globally with our infrastructure. And that passed in the Senate in a bipartisan fashion. The same thing will happen in the House. And it's important. But what it tells us is we're 30 years in and look at the situation we have in south florida when it comes to climate change and sea level rise look at the situation we have around the country and so many of the issues that are in the other bill we don't have 30 more years to wait before we address climate change the summer will tell you that you look at the storms in in louisiana and new jersey and new york and pennsylvania and tennessee and and the hurricanes and the wildfires we don't have 30 years to wait on educating our kids and providing universal pre-k we're falling further behind the rest of the world we can't wait decades to ensure that yeah. medicaid coverage is available that's that that's but that's the i just want to make this last point 
when we look at this, it's not it's not about whether or not we can afford to do it. We can, and I hope we talk about how we're going to pay for it, which we will. It's about whether we can afford to wait decades more and have America fall behind the rest of the world when we should be working to compete against them. Congressman, it's Christina Vasquez here. Thank you again for Thanks, joining Sam. us. I hear you use this language of they want to be viewed together, but we already know there's centrists within the party of Kristen Cinema out of Arizona. You have Manchin out of West Virginia who have already stated they wouldn't back that broader social spending package. You do have bipartisan support right now for the slimmer, and by slimmer we're still talking $1 trillion infrastructure package. We're talking roads and bridges and broadband. We know broadly speaking that investments in infrastructure are something that are supported by the public. And so my question to you is at this point strategically, does it make some more sense to you get this coming out of the Senate to do that House vote on the infrastructure bill, get that onto President Biden's desk so it gets signed and those funds are released for those critical infrastructure improvements instead of this two-track system where it might be caught, caught in some quagmire with the broader bill that doesn't seem to have not only a lot of support from Republicans, but even some centrists within your own party? Uh, sure, and it's an important question and just a couple of ways to respond. First of all, uh, these two bills are going to be voted on. We're moving forward on the, the broader package. Uh, we're going to vote on both of them very soon. Uh, and secondly, I saw Senator Manchin this morning on, on TV in an interview uh, acknowledge that the things that are in the, the larger bill are all important. And I'm confident that we're going to we're going to move forward on them, because, as I said, I think people understand that we just we can't wait any longer to act on on climate change. And we can't wait any longer on these other issues. Universal pre-K is socialism. That's what my Republicans want to argue. Do they argue also that uh, that our public education system is socialism? I mean, if we can provide for our kids at the earliest moments in their education, we set them up for success in our country. We set them up to succeed globally. We're going to move forward on both of these because they're both so important to the future of our country. Yeah. Congressman, uh, let's move on to COVID-19. Uh, on sure. Thursday evening, the president unveiled this sweeping plan uh, that would dictate he wants to mandate that companies with 100 or more employees, all the federal agencies under his control, that everyone involved in those must get vaccinated or get tested uh, twice a week. And the Republican outcry ha has been loud. And, and, you know, they are saying this is a kind of uh, intrusion into the private lives and uh, medical decisions that government should not do. Is the president right, or what do you say to these Republican critics? Well, first of all, starting with the governor, I would suggest that the governor take a look at, at his own Department of Health website, which lists the vaccines that are required for kids to attend public school in the state of Florida. It is just not right to suggest that this is an issue that can simply be left for people to decide that in the middle of a pandemic, their decisions that impact all of the people around them uh, should be left completely up to them. But that's not what, Michael, that's not why we're, that's not why the president had to act. The president had to act because Governor DeSantis is the one who has told business owners in our state that if they take action, business owners that he claims to want to protect, 
if they take action to protect their own employees and their customers because they think it's important to require vaccines, which is yeah. the best step for us to take to get yeah, through well, this let pandemic. Me, if, if I let me just finish. Pass, but let me, he, let me, he's going to find them yeah. for acting in what they believe is their own best interest. So in effect, the governor is, is in large part um, responsible for, for forcing action because he's trying to prevent people from acting reasonably to save lives. Yeah, well, let me jump in and just simply say the governor obviously tried to do that with the cruise lines and the courts upheld the cruise lines. The cruise lines can, in, in fact, now demand that all the passengers be vaccinated, show proof of vaccination. So there are other avenues that can be taken. But back to the conflicts with the school districts mm -hmm. uh, in your county and in, in, you live in Boca Raton, Broward County, Miami-Dade County, the school boards are defying the, the governor, 13 school boards in all in the state, and are saying, we're going to still send our kids to school uh, wearing masks, no matter what the court says. Are they defying the law or are they reading the law the right way? Well, look, the question is why, the only reason we're in this position is because the governor's decided that that it's better to allow his politics lead school boards to have to consider whether to sue to protect their kids or not. That's that's such a terrible position to be in. There are there are more kids who have died in Florida from COVID-19 since the beginning of August than there were in the entire pandemic beforehand. There are thousands of kids in our school district and hundreds of teachers in our school districts in South Florida uh, who have contracted COVID so many more have had to quarantine and leave school, it's a disruption. School districts should be able to do what they believe is in the best interest of the community, of the kids, of the teachers. And I don't understand, especially as we're marking 20 years since 9-11, when, when the country came together to, to stand up and combat a shared threat that we all had, why it is that the governor of our state continues to use this moment to fight against efforts that should bring us together. Simply ensuring that people wear masks and get vaccinated so that we can get through this and, and get back to a sense of, of normalcy. Congressman, we just have a few seconds left, but when it comes sure. to the discussion of masks and stools, it's such a fluid conversation right now. We have an appeals court on Friday siding with the governor that essentially reverses a Leon County judge's order, siding with parents that challenged the governor's order in court. We have a Department of Education launching an investigation, but what I wanted to talk to you about is this recent announcement with the Biden administration trying to create mm -hmm. federal funding to help school districts that decided to uphold best practices in case mitigation as recommended by the CDC, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and have masks mm -hmm. in schools. How does that grant program exactly work? When can districts apply? How, what, where's the funding coming from? And will it last an entire academic school year? Sure, well, we're, we're working to, to get all of that information to our local school districts. But if I, if I may, the, the fact that we're at this moment, again, when the rights of the overwhelming majority of, of people who send their kids to school and the kids who are in school to be safe in school and to not be exposed to COVID so that they don't have to miss school or get sick, are those are the rights that are being ignored. And we'll figure out, I don't know that the governor really wants to spend the entire year at war with school boards and parents uh, over whether or not we should be keeping our kids safe. So I don't know that we're even gonna get to that point. But for now, I, I just wish that we could acknowledge that we can act together 
by taking basic steps. Let's get people vaccinated. Let's let's wear masks and let's get through this together. That's what we ought to be doing. And I wish I just wish that the governor would stop fighting and start working with all of us who want to help accomplish that. Congressman Ted George, good to speak with you as always. Many thanks for your time on this Sunday. My pleasure. Thanks to be. It's great to be with both of you. Thank you for being here. Coming up after the break, a controversial decision this week by Miami-Dade County commissioners paves the way for developers to build warehouses on 800 acres of farmland in South Dade. It is the biggest fight in years over the urban development boundary in Miami-Dade. That hasn't been breached in eight years. We will talk about it with Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine Cobbin next. Welcome back. This week in a 9-3 vote, Miami-Dade commissioners sided with developers choosing to expand Miami-Dade's urban development boundary in deep South Dade to create an industrial park on hundreds of acres of farmland. That decision is not final. Tallahassee has to weigh in on the proposal over the next 30 days and then report back to Miami-Dade for a final vote by the county commission. Firmly opposed to the project is Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Kavich. She joins us now live. Mayor Kava, great to see you and our condolences on the loss of your father, Paul Levine, who died just a few days ago. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. And it's, it is wonderful to be with you. And it is so very sad that my family, like so many others, has been affected by this terrible pandemic. Uh, I, I agree. And I know your father's name is inscribed in the, in the Book of Life. Uh, Madam Mayor, uh, as you well know, because you represented South Dade as a Miami-Dade commissioner, uh, South Dade has really been in an economic slump since Hurricane Andrew. The people who live there have to commute often long distances to Miami. An hour and a half is not uncommon for a commute each way. And the developers say, hey, we would put 12,000 people to work here in this industrial warehouse district that we want to build. So what's wrong with their proposal? So there are really major concerns. Uh, First of all, we have environmental concerns. This is in a hurricane storm surge area. Uh, It puts the uh, bay at risk, and you know our bay is in serious jeopardy. The bay and our environment are our economy, nothing more precious. And if we continue to pollute, we are going to lose everything. So we have to be extremely careful uh, with sea level rising, this area uh, very close and very low. Uh, It does pose a great threat, particularly to the bay. Uh, But as well, there's no demonstrated need for this project in terms of economic development. The acreage that is sought is available in other locations. Other developers have come to our planning department and asked for assistance in locating the necessary acreage. We uh, have the available acreage that has been demonstrated in our staff analysis. And uh, there also is not yet a clear plan for the site. So it's required through the board's own action. Excuse me, Madam Mayor, if I could jump in. There's a plan for 47% of the site. Half the site has a plan. The other half, uh, there there is no plan. That is part of your objection as well, is it not? Correct. But as well, 
the uh, land use changes are supposed to be accompanied by the zoning application. So we can fully evaluate the impact of the proposed changes. And right now, it's really a concept. It's not a fully baked plan. And Madam Mayor, you had spoken a little bit about some of the recommendations your staff had. The community members were not able to hear some of that during this critical yes. vote because right. Chairman Diaz decided not to allow that. We did hear from the developers. Do you think that not being in chambers yourself would have maybe changed the outcome of that? And as we look forward to the next steps, uh, what are they, and do you plan to be present for that next upcoming vote? Yes, so my staff uh, was fully prepared, had a very detailed PowerPoint presentation on any prior uh, efforts to move the urban development boundary. The staff have always been allowed to present, so I'm afraid that this was a rush to judgment on the part of several commissioners. Uh, and very unfortunate indeed that those with expertise, those who are charged by law with analyzing the impacts of proposed development have a chance to present uh, that it, it's not a matter of taking sides it's a matter of presenting the science the data based on uh, all of the evidence that we have as experts uh, in planning in our planning department yeah. so that was very disheartening and yes i will be playing an active role as we move forward uh, because it is so critical that the board and the public understand what's at stake. Yeah, Mayor Levine Cava, you recently released your first budget for Miami-Dade County government. Oh man, it, it is a blockbuster, $9 billion. It's almost inconceivable that it could be that much, but indeed it is uh, 3.3 billion for capital, 5.6 billion for operating, and significantly, it does not call for a tax increase. Now, how did you pull that off? Well, uh, Michael, we are really fortunate because for one thing, our economy is on the rebound. Um, I was looking at the figures for tourism, for example. We're doing so much better than, than most other places, and that is a key part of our economy. But uh, indeed, uh, property values are growing. There's a great demand to, to live here and work here, but we did not have to raise taxes and we can keep all of our services in place and make some important enhancements too. Oh, is that also so it's because very of the efficient. federal funds coming in? I mean, that's such an important element to a pandemic era budget. Yes, so we really are hugely benefiting from the American Rescue Plan and of course the CARES Act before that. The American Rescue Plan is allowing us to replace lost revenue uh, last year and in the two years going forward. So that means that will give us a cushion while the economy fully recovers. Yep. One item too, real quick in the budget, in a post-surfside world reality where we now have so much more of a focus on the need to certify buildings, to have that inspection process, one learning lesson was perhaps we need more manpower, right? More boots on the ground when it comes to code yes. enforcement. I noticed exactly. in the budget there are eight new positions within Code Compliance Division, and I was curious how much of those positions uh, were informed by lessons you learned coming off of Surfside. I believe that we have been short on code enforcement for a long time. This is a, a source of great um, concern when uh, there's blight in a neighborhood, abandoned buildings, things like that. So we've always needed more, but especially now, yes, we need to be responsive and not just code enforcement, but building inspectors. So we're looking at possibly changing the frequency, more frequent recertification or, or shorter time period or uh, more rapid follow-up. So we definitely need more personnel.
yeah. uh, in, in the future to, uh, to follow through on the lessons learned. Yeah. Madam Mayor, you a minute ago mentioned Biscayne Bay. You've been a champion of protecting Biscayne Bay. I looked in the budget and there is only, only $5 million for Biscayne Bay to remove seaweed, remove fish kills, manage flood mitigation. So uh, are you spending enough to help uh, Biscayne Bay become healthy again? We have money uh, designated in the American Rescue Plan to match state dollars. And we have applied for funds from the state to put in um, tens of millions, if not more, into uh, septic to sewer conversion uh, and, and other things that will ameliorate the bay. And we also received uh, substantial grants from the state already for bay cleanup. We also have a new task force that's coming on board. So uh, we are working very hard on the bay. And we also started our fertilizer ban this yeah. summer. So that is helping Madam as well. Mayor, I just had one last question with a few seconds left. There's another position that caught my eye. It's the housing advocate professional. It sounds like a person in a position to mitigate against some impact from evictions and foreclosures. Is that because of something we're already seeing or are you looking ahead and expecting there to be more evictions and foreclosures? We have really worked hard. We have the best rate of uh, eviction prevention in the state. Uh, with the federal dollars that we've been spending at a better rate than almost anyone. And we need to have advocacy to work with our landlords and work with our tenants to make sure we do not have a crisis of increased homelessness. Yeah. Uh, mayor Daniela Levine-Cava, a first year unlike any mayor in the history of Miami-Dade. You had a pandemic economy. You had a COVID crisis. You had the Champlain Tower South collapse. Uh, but you are surviving it all, and we appreciate your leadership. Appreciate Thank your time you. this morning. Thank you for joining us. Always. Thank you so much. Next, we take a look at COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy in South Florida's black communities. You're going to hear from Dr. Cheryl Holder, joining you from the front lines of her ongoing efforts, working with faith leaders to bring vaccination sites to community members. COVID-19 has taken a terrible toll on Florida. More than 48,000 people in the state, our friends, our neighbors, sometimes our family members have died. The, and many of them are people who neglected to get the vaccine or chose not to or were hesitant for one reason or another. And many of them are black. And now joining us is going to be Dr. Cheryl Holder. Such a pleasure to have you with us this morning. She's the Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, Inclusivity, and Community Initiatives at FIU's Herbert Wertheim College of Mat Medicine. She is also with Keeping the Faith, and she is joining us in that capacity. You all are so lucky to have her. Uh, Dr. Holder, you're explaining you are right now joining us, right, from your car yeah. outside of a church in Liberty City. Dr. Yes, good morning. Good, good morning. morning, everyone. I'm at the New Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church. It was one of our partners in getting the word out in the community. They held vaccine events. They had testing. 
the minister, Reverend Al Jackson, has been imploring the community to get tested and get vaccinated. And we are going to start right there. I had the opportunity to see you in action right on Friday, the two of us in Overtown at a pop-up vaccination site. And that really speaks to this work with faith leaders to be, in your words, trusted messengers in the community and expand access. But my question is really helping us unpack a little bit of the deeper cultural issues that fuel the the lag in the vaccine rate within black communities in South Florida. And really at this point in the pandemic, you've been doing this work in community for so many weeks and months. What are the objections you are still hearing and how are you working to combat that and the misinformation that pops up along the way? I start with understanding where this came from. As I tell everyone, this isn't just pop up overnight. When you have communities that have not had access to healthcare, that has had bad experiences with healthcare, bad experiences with the government, where history has compounded a lot of the misinformation and the mistrust and the fear, this is what we expect. And it's not, it's with black communities. We see it in rural communities. We see it in Latin communities. So it comes out of a history of never developing those relationships where you can get the trust in the health message and the trust in the government. So it's going to take time. And when we use trusted messengers, pretty much like we're using the black physicians, the black nurses and the ministers who are often very trusted in our communities to tell the folks, yes, we understand We've been there, we've gone through that same hesitancy, but we came to this side. And using faith, and we often understand the word where we say faith without action is death, and this is what we see. So we want faith with action and using the wisdom that has been imparted from the, from the science, from the doctors, and this time, step out there on faith and trust that this vaccine is going to save and lives. And Dr. Holder, as I hear you, though, I, I think <laughs> I hear a little bit of the friction we're feeling, though, because as you say, some of this can take time. But here we are in a variant-driven case surge. The head of the union that represents Miami-Dade County transit workers, he was telling me they've lost eight members just in the past month, three in the past week, all of them black and unvaccinated. So there really feels like these conversations are life critical and urgent. So how are you overcoming this in that sense of urgency? Well, definitely it's things like what I do today and it's getting the family members, getting the friends, getting everyone on message. We have to move away from this is an individual decision only. This is not just an individual decision. It's a decision you're making for the love of your family, the love of community. And that's how we're going to get these folks to really move urgently. Most people are almost there. And it's with efforts like what we're doing now. You're on the media, the media is doing the campaign. The businesses through their mandates are showing that we care for you as a worker. We want you to be here. So that's why we're mandating this vaccine. So I think having that consistent message businesses, politicians, churches, family members saying, we love you, we want to save you and save our communities. And that's why we're using a vaccine that is safe and effective and prevents you from getting seriously yeah. ill and deaf. And we want you to take this. Yeah. So I think we're moving much more rapidly towards getting that cohesiveness to moving this a little bit further. Well, I, we certainly hope that they are. Um, I think that anybody who is knowledgeable about recent history in, in this country 
uh, a black person would remember or know of the Tuskegee experiment where black men uh, who had syphilis uh, were not treated, they were given placebos, and most of them died. Uh, I mean, one of the most horrendous episodes of medical maltreatment in the history of this country, but that was a long time ago. I mean, does, does the, the fear, does that history still linger in some minds? Well, it's not that history that lingers so much, but it's your day-to-day history. Remember, Florida, for many of the poor people, they don't have access to health insurance. So when you do often end up in the health system, it may not be the most positive experience. So yes, lingering history, and then today you go in and you're not treated as well because you don't have insurance. You may wait three hours in the emergency room. So our systems have created a, a generation of people who may not have developed those trusting relationships with the health system. So it's Tuskegee and it's the day-to-day. So when you're uninsured, you're not having a primary care to go to. One of the things we said at the beginning of this pandemic, call your doctor. Really, when you're uninsured, who do you call? So these are some of the little things that add up over time. That and Express, I think you're doing such a wonderful job articulating some of the challenges that are before us that we need to, as a society, really learn from as we move forward. We thank you so much time, so much for your time this morning. And thank you we for will the do good it. work you're doing. We're Dr. going Holder. to make that, we're gonna make that change. I see it every day and where numbers go up every time we have a vaccine event. So we're getting there. And your words, we're gonna keep the faith. <laughs> Coming up, is Florida already looking to pass a Texas style abortion ban in the upcoming legislative session? We're gonna speak to two lawmakers on both sides of that issue next. The Department of Justice is now challenging a restrictive Texas abortion law that bans abortions after six weeks. Filing suit in federal court claiming it is unconstitutional. This comes after the Supreme Court declined to block the Texas law. Well, now some Florida lawmakers say they want to pass a Florida version of that Texas abortion law. The state Senate president says he would be open to considering it. And one House member says he is ready to introduce his own version of the bill. That state rep is Anthony Sabatini, a Republican from Lake County. We tried to get him on our show last week, but there he is, Representative Sabatini. Welcome. We are glad to be able to speak with you this morning. Thanks for having me on. And also on with us is State Representative Robin Bartleman of Broward County, formerly served on the Broward School Board. Robin, good to see you again. Thanks. Good morning. Good to see you. All right, so Representative Sabatini, uh, a Quinnipiac uh, University poll recently found that 68% of Floridians support legal abortion, including 46% of Republicans. Uh, why does Florida need a, 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 a law as stringent as the one in Texas that virtually bans nearly all abortions? Well, it's an ambiguous poll because it doesn't define what legal abortion is or at what point people feel comfortable cutting off abortion. Uh, most Americans are divided on, on the issue. Most people do have differing opinions about it. I think the heartbeat bill is really a great compromise bill because it, at the end of the day, uh, still allows some choice, but at the end of the day stops abortions in most circumstances when somebody's aware that they're pregnant. And so uh, I believe, you know, that uh, life begins at conception. I'd like to see the uh, needle moved 
to an earlier period than exists under law currently. And I think a lot of Floridians do. And I think it's a moral decision that a lot of people support. So that's why we'll be filing the bill. One thing that's interesting in what you just said there, you said in some circumstances. So you did try to file something similar in the past two legislative sessions. It didn't really gain a lot of traction coming out of committee. In this upcoming bill that you say you intend to file, will there be exemptions for things like rape, incest, and a medical exemption? Yes, most Floridians agree that there should be exemptions. So although this bill that I'll file is a mirror copy of the Texas bill, the three exceptions that mo exemptions that most Americans and Floridians agree with will be included in it. So that would be the minor difference. Yeah. Representative Bartleman, thanks again for joining us. One thing I wanted to note is on Twitter, you described the Texas law as being draconian. You said you were mortified by it. But interestingly, in your thread, you nestled those comments within a very personal experience that you shared about an appreciation you said you had at a time that you were a woman with a right of a parental choice to consider terminating um, an early term pregnancy, in, in your words, because there were some fetal abnormalities. You said that the pregnancy wound up terminating itself. But I was curious to see how much does that personal experience you have with this issue, one of the factors that maybe ground your position on this? Um, I have to say that that was probably one of the most traumatic experiences in my life. Um, that was a much wanted pregnancy. As a matter of fact, I went through infertility treatments to, to get that pregnancy. And I was told that I had uh, fetal abnormalities and that I would have to make a decision. It was heart-wrenching. Every day I went home, I cried. I didn't know what to do. I was a special education teacher. So many thoughts went through my mind. And in the end, yes, the pregnancy did terminate itself. But every day, I am grateful that I had the ability to make that decision. I believe now more than ever that it's a woman's choice whether or not to carry a pregnancy at a term. I believe it's a decision between her, her doctor, her family, and her faith. And nobody else should be uh, making that decision for, for me. So it definitely grounds me in my decision. I feel incredibly strong about this. And not only that, you know, what would have happened is the fetus may have terminated later on in the pregnancy, uh, after birth, there, it, it was incompatible with life. Yeah, Representative so, Sabatini, and, and, I, I beg your pardon, Representative Parliament. Let, let me just get Representative Sabatini in. You know, uh, Representative Sabatini, what your colleague here in the House, basically, I think the fundamental baseline here is don't tell me what I can do with my body. I'm a woman. It is my decision to make. Is it not? Uh, well, what she's describing, and I think it's a valid, you know, issue is the times in which you're having an abortion, a person is having, uh, considering getting an abortion and there's health issues either for the child or for the mother. When, of course, you brought up some of the other exceptions to the traditional abortion situation. A great majority of cases, it's a perfectly healthy uh, person that's within the mother. And so that's what we want to decrease. We want to decrease abortions of um, babies that are completely, totally fine, and there's no issue with the mother, there's no issue with the child, there was no rape, there was no incest, all of those cases combined generally only take place, in, I think, one or two or maybe 3% total, all of those types of exceptions. So I'm focused on the great number of abortions that happen for no reason other than the fact that a person simply doesn't want to 
carry the baby to term and, and uh, give it to adoption if they don't want to carry it. Representative uh, but I Sabatini. do believe that it is murder at that, age, at that young age of six weeks. It does have a heartbeat. That's why the title of the bill is the heartbeat bill. I don't think a person should be aborted if they have a heartbeat. It doesn't matter if they're born or not. Representative Sabatini, when we're talking about some of the other reasons why uh, some young women or uh, women may decide to have this choice or they want to hold on to a right to make a parental choice for early term uh, abortion. According to the state agency that warehouses and collects data on abortions, one of the top reasons cited is actually social or economic reasons. And I was curious to see if you had any thoughts about maybe filing a companion piece of legislation that maybe tackles some of those deeper issues that might underpin a reason why someone wants to terminate a pregnancy. So perhaps it includes things like you know paid family leave, or maybe there's something in there tackling um, early childhood education or food insecurity uh, within certain segments of our of our society. So that way, that life that you're fighting so hard for really has an opportunity for a strong start. Um, yeah. So we have socialized medicine in this country. We have a lot of social services. We have. Uh, a lot of things that exist already. I don't think anyone should be making the decision of whether they get an abortion based on uh, on that. I think it should be given to adoption if the person doesn't want to have an doesn't want to carry the uh, child up and rear the child and raise the child. I think they should consider adoption. There's a line of people that want to adopt a child, and so I just think it's wrong. Those are the wrong kind of factors. But you know, once again, it's really a bit of a red herring. It's uh, trying to sidestep around the issue of whether a perfectly healthy child, perfectly healthy mother, whether a person should be able allowed to kill uh, a person who has a heartbeat that's carried within them um, for no reason other than the fact that I think, as you mentioned, maybe okay. whether you, they're you, going to be able to get more yeah, social representative, services. Representative Sabatini, you, you certainly made your point. We get it. Representative Bartleman, one of the factors that allowed the Supreme Court apparently to go ahead and let the Texas law stand was this curious enforcement method where any citizen, any citizen, not just in Texas, can sue anybody who provides what is considered an illegal abortion and then get paid $10,000. Uh, doesn't that sort of set up a bounty system for this? It sets up vigilante justice and imagine if other laws were enforced that way. But I, I wanna comment on what the representative said about life. This country is founded on personal religious beliefs. When life occurs, is it, it depends on who you are. It depends on your personal beliefs. It depends on your religion. A ban on abortion at six weeks, six weeks of uh, pregnancy is basically an outright ban. Most women do not know they're pregnant at six weeks. And people with uteruses know that periods are irregular. It's only 35 days after your last period. And so basically saying, well, six weeks is enough time, you're basically eliminating all, all abortions, eliminating a woman's right to choose. And, I, and I, I just wanna point this out because I'm not a medical doctor, but I, I wanna read this quote because when he uses the term heartbeat, it, it, as a gynecologist, Dr. Jennifer Gutner explains yeah. that at six weeks of fetal development, 
there is no heart that beats. Instead, there is detectable activity within a four yeah. millimeter wide growth known as a fetal pulse. And he's entitled apologize, to his but, religious but belief. We are, but you can't share that. Robin Bartleman, Anthony Sorry, Sheffield. sorry, thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate your time this morning. We are out of time and uh, we'll be right back. Only Local 10 is speaking with the former First Lady of Haiti about her husband's assassination, her recovery, and the country's future. Here is a first look at Calvin Hughes' exclusive interview with Martine Moise. It was a late August morning with a security team by her side. The First Lady agreed to meet at an undisclosed location in South Florida. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. It had been more than a month since men armed with military-style rifles burst through their bedroom door, shooting her and killing her husband. The bullet that I received, I lost the elbow, so that doesn't exist anymore. Martine Moise describing her injuries from gunshots that were meant to take her life. Here also is broken. Also, is broken, so uh, the nerve, they couldn't put them together. Haiti's first lady has had four surgeries to repair the wounds to her body. How many times were you shot? Uh, two, four, six, I think seven or eight. Two bullets breaking her ribs and nerve tissue taken from her right leg and placed into her right arm so that she's able to have use of her hand and fingers. Can you wiggle your fingers at all? Yes, I can. I can now, but I couldn't before. I will get rid of that. Oh, you'll get rid of it. But the end will never be straight. Yes. It, it always be like that. There's always be a, a curve. It seems a miraculous recovery from the July afternoon when Martine Moise was placed on an emergency flight to Jackson Memorial Hospital. Most people who are watching, who will watch this, couldn't imagine the pain that you endured, not only that night, the physical pain that you endured, but also uh, the emotional pain that comes along with that. I passed a week, a whole week, without sleeping, without eating, only drinking water. It would be a nurse who inspired her to finally eat. And while I'm eating, I said, what, if he was alive, what you would wanted me to do right now? To keep falling down that hole or to start, start getting better? And I realized he always want me to be happy. And I think that my healing process is him. She found strength in their memories together but it would be their children who made her fight. I was dying. <laughs> I was dying after the week. I feel like dying because that, that, that's what I wanted, to die. And when I look at in their eyes too, and I saw them dying with me, and I didn't want that. You can see Calvin's full exclusive interview with Martine Moise. Wednesday night at 8 o'clock only on Local 10. This Week in South Florida continues next.
Before we run out of time, a very brief apology, but sincere apology to Pastor Timothy Forbes of Homestead, whom I inadvertently misidentified this week in a story I did. And this week, South Florida and the nation marked 20 years since the 9-11 attacks and honored the lives lost. We are going to leave you with some of the ceremonies of remembrance and reflection that took place across South Florida. Right. 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 Right.